Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, episode 42, recorded Friday, September 25th, 2020. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hello again. And thanks for listening to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cinterpino. Well, I'm coming to you again on a Friday. We've been busy out diving every weekend since early August, and we still have a few weeks to go. And the weather up here in New England has been remarkable. We could use a little rain, however, but that can wait until after we're done diving. Fall is a great time up here to get out, relax, dive, and enjoy the vibrant colors. On today's show, I'm going to discuss regulator pressures, provide some information on the Coral Restoration Foundation, and talk about another pioneer in our underwater world, Ed Link. So let's get started. Last year, I did a segment regarding buying a Scooby regulator and the value you get by purchasing your regulator from your local dive shop. Things like ensuring that it's assembled correctly and tested before you're taking it diving are important. Regular maintenance on the regulator is also critically important to keeping you safe while diving. Your regulator needs yearly maintenance. Every other year, you will normally get a complete overhaul and on the intervening years, an inspection. So let's start with the inspection. When you bring your regulator in for this inspection, we will take a critical look at the physical elements of the regulator. We'll check all the hoses. They're evaluated to ensure that there are no abnormalities, cracks, or things that we might consider a failure point. Also, we look at the first and second stage to ensure that they are not damaged, that they are intact, and we evaluate the overall cleanliness of the regulator. Once we've completed this physical evaluation and corrected any issues, we'll then conduct tests on the pressures of the regulators, both the intermediate pressure and the cracking pressure. I'll come back to that in a little while. Once we've finished our pressure testing, we complete the uh, inspection with an immersion test to see if there are any leaks, and if there are, we would take those and address them. Now, every other year, based on the specific manufacturer's specifications, you will have your regulator completely overhauled. That means that the regulator, both stages, are completely disassembled, the parts are inspected and cleaned, Certain parts, like O-rings and seats, are replaced, and also, if there are any other parts that are damaged, they are replaced. All the parts are then lubricated 
and the regulator is reassembled and bench tested. So let's shift to talking about testing, specifically the testing of both first stage intermediate pressure and second stage cracking pressures. This is a critical element of your yearly maintenance, whether you have it inspected or overhauled. Now, there's a great general technical manual out there that we have at the shop and we like to read, and that's called Scuba Regulator Savvy, and that's written by Peter Wolfinger of Scuba Tools. It doesn't substitute for the manufacturer's technical manuals, but it really does enhance our understanding of regulator design. Now, according to Peter in the book, final adjustments, that fine-tuning of a regulator for optimal performance, is what separates the good technicians from the parts replacers. Peter describes it as adjustment logic. We take these adjustments very seriously. Let's start with our first stage. The first stage of the regulator takes our tank pressure and adjusts it down to an intermediate pressure. Whether you have a piston or diaphragm first stage, the high pressure air comes in from the tank and when it overcomes the spring forces in the first stage, you get the intermediate pressure. The specific intermediate pressure is a manufacturer specification but should always be somewhere between 125 and 150 PSI. Now, if you have an unbalanced first stage, the intermediate pressure will be different between when you have a full tank or you have lower pressure in your tank. And lower pressure is described as 400 to 600 PSI left in your tank. For that unbalanced first stage, the intermediate pressure could be 8 to 10 PSI difference. Normally, a balanced first stage should maintain the same intermediate pressure whether the tank is full or if you have lower pressures in the tank. Now, sometimes the intermediate pressure will drift a bit, and that is go a little higher as it sits, and the manufacturer will specify what is an acceptable drift. We let the regulator sit for a little while on our bench, uh, or our bench to ensure that the intermediate pressures stay where they need to be. We then document the intermediate pressure on our checklist that we provide the customer. Now for the second stage, a magnahelic gauge that measures the pressure differential across the regulator's diaphragm is used. This is measured in inches of water. To give you a frame of reference, 1 PSI, or 1 pound per square inch, is equal to 27.7 inches of water. That is, 1 inch of water is equal to 0.0361 PSI. The magnahelic measures the cracking pressure of the second stage. And cracking pressure is defined as the minimal amount of inhalation effort required to begin airflow through the regulator. If it's not set properly, the second stage may free flow too easily, or if it's not tuned properly, it would make it difficult to breathe. There's a lot that goes into setting the cracking pressure correctly, and it's a fine-tuning adjustment to get this somewhere close to one inch of water, and that's not a lot of effort to open up the flow. 
Sometimes we take our regulators for granted. We just assume they were always going to work. But the care and maintenance is important. Part of that maintenance involves getting the pressure set correctly. I hope I've given you a little more understanding of those settings for both the intermediate pressure and the cracking pressure. And when you get your regulator back from your local dive shop, they should give you a sheet that, that outlines what those pressures were. Now you know a little bit more about what to look for. Last night, in support of Project AWARE Week 2020, we conducted the AWARE Coral Reef Conservation Specialty Class. We conducted this class virtually through Zoom, and we had a really nice turnout of folks who care a lot about the environment and the importance of coral reefs. As I was preparing for the course, I reached out to the Coral Restoration Foundation based out of Key Largo to see if they would be able to participate and help us out with the presentation. And we were very fortunate to have Chris Reynolds from Coral Restoration Foundation spend a little time with us to talking about corals, their situation, the work they are doing, and to answer questions from the folks who attended the, uh, the, the specialty class. Incidentally, we had planned to visit the Coral Restoration Foundation earlier this year when we were going to do a trip down to Key Largo, but that trip fell victim to the coronavirus lockdown. So coming off the heels of our specialty class and presentation by the Coral Restoration Foundation, I thought I'd give you a little more detail about the Coral Restoration Foundation. I remember when I first started diving, I read about this guy, Ken Niedemeyer, down in Florida, who was replanting staghorn coral on various reefs in the, uh, in the Keys. Now, according to the Coral Restoration Foundation website, Ken was a commercial fish collector and live rock farmer. I just had to research exactly what a live rock farmer is. Well, live rock farming is when you put rocks in the ocean or other tanks and they get colonized with bacteria, that's beneficial bacteria, and other encrusting organisms so that you can later place them inside aquariums. That's a whole research area in and of itself. So while Ken was doing his thing, he noticed several colonies of staghorn corals settling onto his farm. And as they started to grow, Ken saw the potential for restoring the coral habitat. That's when he formed Coral Restoration Foundation in 2007. And over the years, they have exper experimented and developed different methods to grow and transplant corals. To give you a good idea of all the work they've done uh, by this foundation, I thought that their 2000 and 19 annual report would paint the picture. The report starts with a dire warning, and that warning is that by 2100, we could lose all shallow water coral reefs. The Coral Restoration Foundation is being successful, however, by returning tens of thousands of corals to the wild every year 
and in seeing their outplanet corals spawning. By the way, they also in- invented the coral trees that are now in use around the world. The message from the CEO, R. Scott Winters, is encouraging. The section of the annual report on regenerating ecosystems provides all the statistics and accomplishments. Their coral nurseries off Tavernier in Florida cover 1.5 acres of the seafloor, and they consist of genetically diverse corals, including those reef-building branching corals like staghorn and elkhorn coral, star corals, pillar corals, as well as several other species. In 2019, NOAA and the Coral Restoration Foundation, along with some others, announced a program called Mission Iconic Reefs, and that's an effort to restore seven coral reef uh, sites in the Florida Keys. And if they do that, that restoration would be 93,000 square meters of reef or 52 football, football field size reefs. It remains a big focus in 2020, and you can get all the details from their annual report. Another cool thing that they are doing is monitoring the health of the reefs through something called photomosaics, or high-resolution images of the reef sites created by stitching thousands of smaller photos together. They have a great picture in their annual report of the outplanted elkhorn coral on Carries Four Reef in Florida. It's really interesting to see how they take those photos. They use a, a, a DPV with a photomosaic rig attached to it and kind of fly over the reef. If you really want to see the positive impacts, check out the Carries Ford Reef demonstration site under the Restoration tab on the Coral Restoration Foundation website. It's amazing the work that has reversed the decline of this special place. There are so many threats to coral reefs, climate change, toxins, human disregard, things we can and should change. But we also need to help the reefs recover. And that work is being done by the Coral Restoration Foundation. And that will be critical if we expect them to be around by the end of the century. We need to win this battle. There are so many pioneers in the exploration of the ocean who may not be well known, or at least individuals that I never knew about until I came across them while researching other topics. For me, one of those individuals is Ed Link. I learned about Edwin Albert Link while I was researching Scott Carpenter and the work he did as a Sea Lab aquanaut. Ed Link was born in 1904 and his father owned Link Piano and Organ Company in Binghamton, New York. As a young man, Link's passion was flying. In the 1920s, he developed the Link Trainer for training pilots. He formed a company called Link Aeronautics Corporation, and by 1934, he sold the trainers to the Army Air Corps. Well, in World War II, more than half a million airmen were taught on Link trainers. 
an incredibly successful company that made Link a very wealthy man. He sold that company in 1954. But in 1951, Link got a hold of an aqualung, and now he had a new passion, and that, be di- that being diving. His passion included underwater archaeology and research. Having the financial means, Ed built a 91-foot-long oceanographic research vessel called Sea Diver. Sea Diver also had an 18-foot cruiser on board, and it carried his own two-engine plane named Widgeon. By the 1960s, he continued his evolution in diving by looking to dive deeper, longer, and more securely. This was the era of work being done by George Bond with the U.S. Navy's Genesis Project that eventually became Sea Lab and Jacques Cousteau's Conshelf program. Ed Link also had a project that he called Man in Sea, and that project was being sponsored by the National Geographic Society. Originally, Ed met with Cousteau in 1961, and they were supposed to collaborate on Man in Sea, but over time, their collaboration fell apart, and Ed was forced to pursue Man in Sea on his own. Ed's goal for Man and Sea was ambitious. He wanted to do a saturation dive to 200 feet in his habitat, which was an 11-foot-long, 3-foot-wide uh, uh, cylinder, and that was originally designed to take divers to Cousteau's underwater dwelling. On August 28, 1962, Ed Link entered his cylinder for a dive to 60 feet for eight hours. He used his scuba gear to exit the cylinder and swim around. Ed had broken a diving record that was more than two centuries old. He was 58 years old. On September 5, 1962, Robert Stenwit, a 29-year-old Belgian diver, made a 24-hour dive in Link Cylinder, another barrier broken. By 1964, Link set his sights on another ambitious target of deep diving with his submersible, portable, inflatable dwelling, or SPID, a small sausage-like habitat. Stenwheat, along with John Lindbergh, that was Charles Lindbergh's son, would make a dive to 432 feet for 49 hours. After their 49 hours, they left the SPID and entered the cylinder for their long decompression. Ed Link continued his innovation with a mini-submarine called Deep Diver, and in 1967, Deep Diver took two divers to a depth of 700 feet, where they exited the mini-sub for 15 minutes. By 1971, Ed Link built a new submarine, and it was called Johnson Sea Link. The Johnson part in the name comes from J. Seward Johnson of the company Johnson & Johnson. It looked like a helicopter without rotors. The cockpit had two seats with a six-foot uh, acrylic dome, and in the back of the battery compartment was a two-diver lockout chamber. On Father's Day, 1973, Sea link got stuck on a cable off of Key West. Link's son, Edwin Clayton Link, 
and another diver, Albert Stover, were in the lockout chamber. After 30 hours, Sea Link was free. The pilots in the, com- in the cockpit were saved, by Ed- but Edwin and Albert died. Ed Link spent the next two years working on deep rescue equipment, and he built something called the Cable Observation and Rescue Device, or CORD, and it was complete with a TV camera, hydraulic claws, and cutters. He then built a second Johnson Sea Link. Edwin Albert Link died in 1981. So for me, my research in the Sea Lab led me to another pioneer in ocean exploration. I wasn't aware of the work that was accomplished by Ed Link to further our understanding of how to become people in the sea. Well, that's it for today. Hope you enjoyed the show and found it informative. I love looking for topics, researching the history of our sport, and then recording every other week. I really appreciate your tuning in and your continued support. Please consider subscribing to Scuba Shack Radio or giving the show a rating on your favorite podcast app. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another episode of Scuba Shack Radio. Until then, safe diving, everyone. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.